I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Monic Miller is senior counsel at the American Humanist Association's Apignani Humanist Legal Center. If the AHA is involved in a lawsuit, she's the person doing the legwork. And that involves everything from uh, letters to city councils to amicus briefs for the U.S. Supreme Court. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, I'm happy to be here. So is this the job you thought you would be doing coming out of law school? (laughs) That's a good question. Coming out of law school, um, I guess yes, in a way. Um, I had done some summer internships at AHA. In fact, both of my summer internships were at AHA because I enjoyed it so much. Um, And I spent a semester in practice actually working at the legal center. So I'd already had about, I want to say, eight months under my belt uh, before graduating from law school, um, and I was really hoping to, to do, obviously, separation of church and state work, um, and I was fortunate enough to have um, a position created for me to come on board and, and do this uh, stuff uh, pretty much full-time. And they've really ramped up how much legal work they seem to have been doing, at least from an observer's perspective in the past few years since you came on board, too. Is that fair to say, or were they doing a lot of legal stuff before you? Um, you know, I think it is fair to say. I, I think, um, you know, when when the legal center started, um, it was primarily involved in amicus activity, which is just friend of the court briefs, um, some cease and desist letters, but we really weren't uh, a full um, litigation center, um, you know, until, uh, I guess, the last couple of years. What was the first time you guys uh, kind of rolled out all of your sort of legal prowess? Um, can you say that again? Yeah, when was the first time you guys kind of rolled out all of your legal prowess? Like, what was your first sort of big case, I guess? Okay, big case. Um, that's that's also a good question. I, I think the AHA as an organization had a few cases, you know, back 10, 10 to 30 years ago um, that, that weren't really done through the AHA, but outside counsel. As far as since we've been on board through the Oppenheimer Humanist Legal Center, it's hard to say what are the biggest ones. We have several that are pending before federal courts of appeals. And I think for that reason, we consider them pretty major cases because once you have a federal court of appeals involved, um, your the law that, that the case creates has a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have one, for instance, that is uh, involving graduation prayer and graduations being held in Christian venues at the same time. So you get a prayer and uh, you're surrounded by Jesus at the same time. Um, you know, these they're, I, I think they're all pretty important cases. So it just sort of depends on how you define big or um, landmark. Uh, you know, I think when we, we've sued the federal government uh, twice now, and I think those cases tend to be higher profile just because it's the federal government as opposed to a school district defendant. What drew you to church-state separation law as opposed to any of the other kinds? Okay, um, I should preface this by saying I'm actually also an attorney at the Non-Human Rights Project. It's a um, more or less a part-time position um, because we're we're doing it's more of a project-based thing. But we have started uh, animal law-related lawsuits as well. So uh, with that in mind, I actually was uh, always interested in doing some sort of animal rights 
uh, animal welfare type of uh, law when I was an undergrad. Um, and I chose a law school that was specialized in environmental law because it was the closest thing kind of to the type of animal law I'm interested in. Um, but in law school, I started taking con law classes and I was already an atheist um, and was familiar with um, you know some people in the movement, but just on a very uh, small scale. And as I was taking constitutional law, I just became extremely interested in church state issues and um, the importance of the establishment clause within the First Amendment. And I reached out to attorney Michael Newdow because I read about his case in our textbook. It was the Pledge of Allegiance case. Um, and I thought maybe he'll have some suggestions on either where to work or maybe I could help him out uh, with some of his cases. And he was very happy to have free law school help. So <laughs> I got kind of involved in the movement just through him and then learned about the Humanist Association, I guess, sometime in my first year. And I guess it just all, all <laughs> stemmed out of that. How much of the work you do now did you actually learn in law school? And this is just my ignorance about how law school works. But, like, how much of this did you learn on the job where, you know, yeah, you're a lawyer, you know kind of how to write letters and briefs and stuff, but I assume this is not one of those specialties. Maybe I'm wrong. Isn't there a wife a lawyer? She's a different type of lawyer, though. And oh. <laughs> and she would tell you the same thing, which is that a lot of the stuff she's doing, she does family law custody stuff. Uh -huh. A lot of the stuff she's doing now, she never really did oh, okay. in school. Fair she enough. just picked up the bulk of it I thought you just ignored job. your wife, like, all the time. Well, that too, but, <laughs> you know. That's a great observation. In fact, I think it's one of the biggest flaws of law school in contrast to other uh you know, graduate school programs such as medical school where you're required to work in a hospital or a medical center and get um, a hands-on experience with the type of work you'll be doing for the rest of your life. Law school is very academic, textbook, very little um, hands-on practice. So the short answer is no, I didn't learn the skills that I practiced necessarily in law school. We learned, um, you know, how to write briefs a little bit and how to... Um, you know, argue before court, but just again, these are, you know, one class would be appellate advocacy. It's not part of the curriculum. However, I picked Vermont Law School, not only because I, you know, it had the environmental program that I liked for the animal side of my world, but it also had a um, pretty good clinical um, externship type uh, program. So that was what really what allowed me to work at AHA for um, a semester, an entire semester, and get full school credit for that. And had I not done that, I think, um, you know, I wouldn't be nearly as uh, prepared to take on the tasks that I did coming right out of law school. I mean, by the time as an intern, actually, my first internship assignment in uh, my first year of law school was to write a brief to the Supreme Court and then one to the I think it was at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And at that time, I probably had only written, you know, maybe a brief or two uh, in law school. So it That's really threw me right forward. into the practice and yeah. helped a lot uh, for, for the coming years. So uh, you mentioned already that you were, have worked for animal rights associations. How is there a crossover there between the AHA and your animal rights work, or are they pretty siloed? Very different. No conflict, but very different types of um, types of law and, and what we're actually doing at both of them. If anything, the overlap that I see is through humanism as a movement, as opposed to the legal side of things. Oh, sure. I know a lot of humanists that are vegans and are and see um, sort of a humanist obligation to be ethical towards non-human animals, um, to consider them as part of um, part of us, as opposed to something separate. 
So there's overlap with humanism and animal rights. I'm not sure really if the legal stuff is, um, is, is really overlapping. Stepping aside from your role at the AHA, let me ask you, what do you think are the biggest church-state separation issues facing our country right now? Okay. The biggest, the most immediate ones that come to mind are less about the Establishment Clause, which is what we traditionally consider the church-state clause, um, and more conflict between, I want to say, equal protection rights, you know, with the um, LGBTQ community, as well as conflict with the, um, you know, women's rights under the Equal Protection Clause. We've seen in the recent Zuba case that religious organizations are trying to prohibit uh, access for women to receive contraceptives. So um, right immediately, we're seeing religious groups uh, trying to get, I want to say, I don't think exemptions are the right word. I think they're trying to basically infringe upon the rights of others through the guise of religion. So um, that's kind of the, the most immediate thing that comes to mind. I think the other things are, you know, what we see in the South all the time in public schools, especially. I think public schools are the, the main area that um, I'm mostly concerned with because their, you know, children are vulnerable and um, with with the religious right sort of forcing Christianity down the throats of our, our youth, it's a little bit troubling. I'm curious uh, about when you talk about public schools in the South, if nobody comes to you and says, hey, my kid is in school or I'm in school and they're making us pray or they're saying this out or the other, is there anything you can do without somebody approaching you first or can you kind of jump in on your own? Almost without exception, we need a complainant um, to come forward to us. And that does pose a problem because a lot of parents and other people, uh, members of society, do not want to be named in a public document that identifies them, A, as an atheist, and B, aligning themselves against either their school or their government. So um, it is an unfortunate part of this because really – uh, the government shouldn't be acting unconstitutionally whether or not there's a plaintiff involved, but that is what we're we're faced with. Can they ever say to you, you know, hey, this is they're preaching in my public school. We want to be anonymous. Uh, what leeway do they have to maintain that anonymity? Do they ever get it? Or is it only in certain parts where it's like, yeah, we can send a letter to the schools without giving you away. But if you actually want to file a lawsuit, because the school isn't going to change, you're going to have to be public. Like, what's the line at what point they can't have anonymity? You've pretty much identified our typical response to these types of uh, situations. We do say, you know, you can be anonymous in a letter. Um, and, you know, with the caveat that if you're the only atheist in town and someone might know that, or um, if something specific happened in your child's classroom, they might be able to figure out who you are. So we need to be careful um, especially in the school systems where, um, you know, kids can be more susceptible to being bullied and that kind of thing, to be clear that they should be assuming the risk that they they could be identified. Um, but, yes, we normally do, even if they want to be named in the, the letter, you know, as opposed to a lawsuit, we caution against it just because we don't want it to be about that person. We want it to be about the issue uh, that we're dealing with. It just kind of becomes a distraction. Um, And then, you know, but then as far as the lawsuits go, actually, in the public school context, uh, usually 
the courts will allow plaintiffs to proceed pseudonymously or anonymously, uh, you know, by going by a Jane Doe mm. or just the initials, um, like MB, for example. We have an MB case. And so, you know, you can have, you can, you, you have to move for it. So it's not a guarantee, but it's still, we're still operating under the same assumption that we do with our letters, which is be prepared to be, um, to be identified because often the government, even if you can seal the student's name from the public, the government often has the right to know who the student is so they can verify that, you know, we didn't just make them up <laughs> for standing purposes. So we do have to have them be fully prepared for the worst. I'm curious whether anybody ever comes forward who isn't an atheist who might say like, yeah, I'm Christian, but I see the problem with praying in public school or I'm, I'm a Christian, a, but I'm, my teacher was preaching in the classroom. Right. Does that happen mm -hmm. ever, or does it tend to be atheists or people with atheist parents who come forward? It's actually, surprisingly, I would say almost a third of our clients, uh, either in our cases and uh, that come to us with letters, maybe less for the letters, because we do get a lot of um, students complaining about having to say the pledge because of the under God language. So if you take those out of the equation, I'd say about a third of them are, are usually Christians. And, of course, in the yep. South, being a liberal Christian is a whole different thing than being, you know, conservative Christian. So to them, atheism and humanism is, uh, you know, almost closer to their beliefs than the, the type of Christianity that you see in the South. So when I say the South loosely, I mean, you know, rural, rural pockets where you see the most conservative Christians. And um, so, yeah, we do. And, and the courts have been very clear that it doesn't matter for the establishment cause whether the government's promoting your religion mm -hmm. or another religion. The point is that the government can't promote religion. So if you come to us and you're a Christian and you're saying, you know, I don't feel comfortable with the school teaching my kids this brand of Christianity or just Christianity in general. And the same applies for, um, you know, Judaism. There's, there's plenty of cases where one sect of Judaism will be suing the government for promoting another sort of brand of it or just in general um just sort of depends on on who the person is but yeah it does it doesn't make a legal difference um but it, it yeah we do see it actually pretty frequently a second ago you touched on uh the idea of the under god language in in the pledge what are your thoughts regarding that and regarding in god we trust on our money and so forth do you think that's something we'll ever see go away or are we just kind of stuck with it Oh, I mean, I sure hope we're not <laughs> stuck with it. I, like I said, I mean, my, the first kind of in that I had in this legal center or this uh, separation of church and state world was with Michael Newdow, who's known for his um, under God litigation. And now he's uh, challenging once again, the motto under uh, in God we trust. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but the way that the courts have been treating these cases is not good, um, and I completely disagree with them. I mean, clearly, God is a theistic term, and, and promoting it in our coinage and uh, in our daily pledge are um, clearly promoting religion. Right. So I, I don't—it's it's very challenging, and so that's why at the AHA we have done our—we uh, did launch our um, Don't Say the Pledge campaign because— realizing that the courts are not giving us the um, vindication that we're hoping for. We want to rally students um, and, and have them sort of have a voice in this and take a stand and at least bring to light the fact that this isn't some neutral language, but it is language that marginalizes atheists and humanists and makes them feel uncomfortable in their schools.
What's the justification of the courts? Is it because they're not saying one nation under our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? They're just saying God and they believe that's generic enough? Is that kind of the justification? Yeah, that's that that's basically it. Um it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you know, David Neosi, uh, our legal center director, has um made this argument in court that, you know, if it was one nation under white people, we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't accept that either. I mean, so it's it is the court making a judgment call and I think a very subjective one that somehow God is neutral because you know I guess the the assumption is that everyone believes in God and atheists shouldn't be offended by the word um I just I can't can't really wrap my head around the logic but I think that's basically what what the courts have been saying yeah I'm curious if in 30 years if sort of demographics stay what they are you know millennials are the least believing generation ever I'm if that trend continues and people don't fall back into religion as they get older. I'm curious if that will change because I don't think in 30 years or 50 years, the default is going to be, we just, you just assume somebody believes in God unless they say otherwise. So I'm curious how that, how that shakes out in the next couple decades. Mm-hmm. I'm, that's a great question. I mean, usually the, the law sort of follows the social patterns. Um, so that's, you know, when we saw the LGBTQ movement was very successful in the, you know, getting same-sex marriage, um, you know, on the books because they were able to mobilize sort of the public into being on board. And and then we saw the law follow uh, social norms a little bit. And so I think you're right that if, if, if society shifts in such a way that there's no longer an assumption that everyone believes in God or that God belief is, the default, I think you will see a shift in in the courts, you know, looking at it in a different way. Um, I'd hope that that future is closer than, um, you know, later. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point. But then I wonder if the flip side of that is like people, you know, people our age, Hammond, are so like, they can't get their heckles up about like in God, which has like, oh my God, we have bigger shit to worry about than like right. what are coins say. This but, generation um, apathetic? Never. <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> yeah, um, the apathy. I think I think the apathy's probably always been there. You know, when you read these lawsuits or these um, court decisions, even from 50 years ago, the Supreme Court would be very clear that, you know, against an argument that something is um, a de minimis injury or you know a single prayer shouldn't amount to much. But the Supreme Court, at least, has been very sensitive to the fact that just one violation, just one. You know, making one person feel uncomfortable because the government's promoting religion is is too, too much. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how to convince teenagers to not be apathetic about constitutional rights. That might just be a problem <laughs> forever. But um, there's you know, plenty I, of things they don't give a shit about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is just one of many yeah. that they might not care about. But it's you know, I can't. We're here doing constitutional law. I'm not going to say that. Our, the type of law that we do is more important than, say, you know, helping the homeless or doing another um, public service type of law or public service issue. I think they're all, um, in some ways, equally important. Sometimes one might be, you know, have have a greater immediate need, uh-huh. um, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> spending time trying to prevent the government from violating the Constitution is um, not important. Yeah, and I think that's also. You know, I'm no one the one said it, but like I think that's also like a tricky path to start walking down of like, oh well, we shouldn't right. worry about X because we've got Y to worry about, and then like right. then you can't do anything until like world hunger is solved, and then we can start working on like gay rights again. And that's how Donald right. Trump becomes president. 
Yeah. Right. I actually had a very interesting uh, situation that involved that issue in law school um, because, like I said, I am an animal rights activist, and I had a turkey drive um, around the time of Thanksgiving to raise money for Farm Sanctuary, a uh, sanctuary that, that takes in you know farm animals that, that are going to be used for food or um, and so, but some, some women at uh, the law school had a big problem with it because I was taking away somehow the money that would be otherwise given to homeless people. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of the professors saw the flaw in that argument, which was just that, you know, people can choose however they want to donate their money and they can donate their money to both a, you know, a homeless shelter and uh, an animal group. They're not mutually exclusive. And mm-hmm. I think it's just one person. And of course, this woman wasn't doing anything herself i never got that argument with churches where they take in millions of dollars and the you know church spends it on x y or z and i i will sometimes hear atheists complain like oh well they wasted their money on whatever a mission trip they could have helped the home it's their money and like they can spend it how they want to how they think it's important you can do the same let's see how much you're giving like your money talks yeah um let me ask you uh monica between the AHA and Americans United for Separation of Church and State, Freedom from Religion Foundation, ACLU, uh, there are a number of groups now, nonprofit groups, that do church-state separation lawsuits to, to varying degrees anyway. is I don't know if you guys, how you communicate with each other, do you coordinate ever? Because I assume a lot of groups are getting very similar cases and I also assume you don't want to, like, just say, oh, you should go to the ACLU for that. Because, of course, you want to handle these issues, too. Oh, yeah. So how do you guys work that sort of stuff out? Or is it just one of those unspoken, if it comes to you, you handle it, and that's the end of it? Great question. I would start it off by saying I wish there were even more groups, or at least not more groups, but there were more attorneys working on these issues because our opponents are, you know, quadruple our size and have quadruple our resources and money. So. Um, the short of it is that there are more than enough cases to go around. <laughs> we're, we're, I think all of the groups are turning down probably some cases that have some merit, um, but just, you know, we, we all have limited resources. As far as coordinating goes, um, I'm actually in regular touch with, with the attorneys both at FFRF and AU. Occasionally we speak out, uh, reach ACLU, but they don't do as much church-state litigation right now. I think they're focused on other issues. So it really is, I would say, kind of, the three of us, FFRF, AU, and um, and uh, AHA, bringing I would say the majority of the establishment clause cases, and we do coordinate um, whenever whenever something becomes like a public issue, and it, it's apparent that we have the same client, or um, you know, if one of us were already in the district, we're always very friendly with each other and are trying to help each other. I mean, I I talk to them. I would almost say once every couple weeks um i'm talking to either someone at au or ffrf has it ever um, happened that one that's... of one yeah. of them got a case and said you know what monica would be better at handling that or vice versa at times we have um especially if it is in the area that they might already ha- you know have um a similar case going on uh it what happened recently actually is that we decided uh aha and ffrf that we are going to be doing a joint case um involving a cross in florida because we had a similar client and we just thought you know this is these cross cases can take um a lot of resources because sometimes you have to do historical research and get expert witnesses so we actually are working on a joint complaint right now (laughs) 
See, we're not we're not always hurting cats, and it's not always that <laughs> difficult. We can work together. Um, are there any cases that you lost in court that you just felt so strongly like everything is on our side? There's no logical reason we should lose this case. Uh, <laughs> do you have one in mind? <laughs> you- <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean. Yes, I have several, but I guess the one that first came to mind is our, our cross case, actually, in um, Bladensburg, Maryland. There's an enormous 40-foot cross on government property, and it's a standalone cross um, in the middle of a highway median. And every, basically every court, no, every court that has ruled on a government mor- memorial cross, which is what this is, has found it unconstitutional. There have been a few cases where the facts are just completely different. Um, I want to say, you know, the, the 9-11 cross in the American Atheist case was one where it was basically rubble and it was in a museum context. It's very different from our case. So um, it was one of those ones where you just think there's no way around all the precedent. Um, yeah, this is but, a very clearly a Christian cross on government property. Right. Of course that's illegal. Right. And to reach the conclusion that it did, the court effectively found that the cross doesn't endorse Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we're on appeal right now, and it just kind of makes you it just it, it's it, frustrating. Doesn't really ex- express how I feel about it because you just it's it's almost defeating. Um, I mean, I put a lot of resources and time into the trial court briefs, but now on appeal, you just like, is there anything that I can say, or is it just so unpopular to rule against, uh, rule in favor of atheists, or rule against the cross? Um, yeah, what's your you know, whole I, rebuttal? Just a note that says, "Yes, it is." Right. <laughs> like, right. would be like, "Do I come on. Did say something wrong? Is there something else I should have said? I don't, you know, I, I, whole I first had to look at that. what I could have done differently, and I just, I keep, I keep up coming up short because I just, I don't. I don't get it. The whole brief is like a guy shrugging. Right. <laughs> I don't know what Dude. else to do. Dude. Exactly. God, uh, a cross isn't cr- like where it's do the they, letter T? Where don't you do know? they come off? Like wh- <laughs> who? Who? I, I just don't. Jessica's get having a breakdown right I now saw. while she. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, sure. So. When you file all these things, <laughs> when you file all these cases, there is a lot of press that comes with it. And I'm sure when you see some of that stuff, uh, some of the press doesn't get it either. And uh, I'm sure a lot of the commenters on those articles don't get it. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the work that you do at AJ? Mm-hmm. I think from at least our, the kind of opposing side as opposed to within the movement is is that we're somehow taking away religion, like as if there's some that there's some existing right for them to have prayer in their classrooms and to have their crosses on government property. And so that when we bring a challenge to remove the the religious reference so that the government can be neutral, it's somehow we're taking some right, you know, right in, in air quotes away from them. And I think that's, I think that's the biggest misconception. Of course, there's the other under, underlying ones, you know, that atheists are evil and we're going to hell and all that stuff. But well, I think duh. from the legal standpoint, right. that's the biggest one we see. We're, we're legally going to hell. <laughs> Is there any... Yeah, we're legally going to hell. <laughs> Is there any criticism you ever get from within the movement? I don't know. You said it was like, this is from outside the movement. But do you get any criticism on the work you do within the movement? We have a little bit. I wouldn't say often, but we did, um, for example, when we successfully um, got injunctive relief against the Federal Bureau of Prisons for um, discriminating against humanist inmates. Uh, Our lawsuit 
made legal arguments, not that humanism is religion, but that the courts must treat humanism sort of as the equivalent to a religion, which is exactly what the courts have been saying for, for decades. So it's not like we were actually really making novel arguments. The courts have, have even said atheism is a First Amendment type of religion. Um, so, but we had, you know, people within the movement being confused and or um, angry, some sort of, uh, because they don't think that humanism is a religion. Um, and so this is sort of where those legal nuances uh, come into play and in, in that you can't really just explain it to someone that we're not saying it is a religion. We're saying it should be treated like one. And so those, that's kind of where I guess we've gotten the most flack. Is, They're mad about the um, philosophical from, issues. Yeah. Is that frustrating? Legal. Right. Is that frustrating? I feel like it's just like, it's all pedantry. It's everybody's being pedantic about like humanism yeah. is like, I just feel like that would make me bananas. We're in crazy. the middle of a court case <laughs> and you're picking apart my grammar. Right. Exactly. Sort of yeah. And it's like, <laughs> we're it not, matters. we have all these options. I mean, it's like, that's the way, that's the path for the, the legal right. outcome. I mean, do you not want humanists to have equal treatment? <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is frustrating, especially when it comes from within the movement, because, you know, it's like, here I am working late nights trying to get, you know, vindicate some important established cause rights. And it's disappointing when, when people don't really appreciate that or see, see eye to eye on why it's important. But, so you know, everyone's on, entitled to their opinion. Speaking right. on that same front, when we let's talk about that, that cross again, that uh, the courts, court, lower courts said. Where was the at, cross again? Uh, did we say that it was Maryland, I think? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when you're uh, when you're in this legal challenge against. Uh, I forgot who you uh, are up against in that case. Was it the government that you sued? Yes, yes. Is the are the lawyers representing the government? Do you think they genuinely believe a giant <laughs> Christian cross is not really a Christian <laughs> symbol? Damn it! Or is that just the? People. Sorry, I just put Jessica back into re. Uh, uh, I don't. Remission. I think I, it's no. And actually, one of the things I keep pointing out, and I should mention to you that actually our main our main opponent in that case is um, American Legion. They intervened. Um, but no, we have statements from the American Legion discussing this cross in particular, and. Uh, even statements from the government suggesting that they not only see this as a religious symbol, but obviously a Christian one that yeah. represents Christ. So um, when the American Legion, I think, is so, is the you know easy to say that because they're they're kind of a theistic organization. Right. Whatever. Nothing means anything anyway. It's fine. <laughs> of course, it's just a T. That's what they say. Uh, yeah. yeah. But that's the thing. Like we're just objecting to the shape of it. That's all. Just the shape of it. This anyway. is what I'm getting at, though. I mean, the people who work at the American Legion or you know Liberty Council or any of these religious right legal groups and stuff do they genuinely it's one thing to say uh, they believe some of these things you're you're interpreting the first amendment or the establishment clause wrongly but when they are saying no it's not a christian cross are they rolling their eyes when they're saying that or do they genuinely think no this is fine we're not promoting religion wink wink like what's going on on their end fuck everybody i hate everything right now i'm so frustrated Um, I, i think that they definitely no, I don't think Liberty Council, Beckett Fund, those organizations would be representing government defendants if it weren't religious, if they didn't see it as religious. American Legion certainly would not be in this lawsuit if it were a slab of concrete that did not take the form of a cross. So I think their attorneys right. are very, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, I can't I can't speak for them clearly, right. but I can't fathom how, how they could see it any other way. Sorry, Jessica's lying in the fetal position in the corner of the room. I just, I can't, like, 
We've been talking about this for like 25 minutes and I'm fucking exhausted by it. Let like, me, good for you. Like, let me ask you one uh, a question on the Monica, flip side. Monica, you're then. the real hero. You just want to go to bed. What's what's the best vic- what's the best victory you've had so far in your time there? Please give me good news, Ooh, Monica, okay. for like a second. Oh my gosh. I mean, the one you're most proud of. I'm sure there are some big cases, but what's the one that I guess meant a lot to you? Okay. So just think for just a sure. second. I'm just going to continue to have a breakdown over here. It's the I letter just... T. Fuck that shit. What? Just, I guess, I don't know. I There's different ones for different reasons. Um, I, I think I, I was very, I had a very good sense of accomplishment after the Bureau of Prisons case because it was the federal government and um, the scope of the relief that we were able to get is... Um, throughout the entire country. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons has agreed to recognize humanism in all of its facilities. And so I think from that standpoint, and it was a... And that means, going that, up against, that means yeah. federal prisoners who are humanists can get certain perks and benefits that previously only religious prisoners got. Right, exactly. Cool. Um, that's yeah. good. So I think that's important. But I guess... Yeah, I mean, the, the other one that I think was pretty significant was just um, a cross case that we had out in California. It was one of the first cases that um, I had been writing the briefs on, and I went to the trial. It was one of the first. In fact, we don't really have trials in our cases, so it was sort of significant on its own right because it went to trial. Um, and then the t- and then when the court granted the uh, you know ruled in our favor, it was kind of across the board relief. It wasn't just oh, this violates one part of this test. It was like it violates this, 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 and the California Constitution. So I think that was a very gratifying um, feeling, I guess. Well, that's awesome. And I hope you keep having these victories uh, (laughs) and don't let the frustrated alphabet rebuttals get you down. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thanks. I'm sorry you had to bear witness to my breakdown. It's just been... (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Monica. We'll have links to the cases we talked about and the AHA and the Apignani uh, Humanist Legal Center on our show notes for this uh, podcast. Uh, Thanks again for your time and all the work you do. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.